Hi, everyone, and welcome again to Chapel Hill. Uh, we're glad that you can join us today, especially those of you who are joining us online. Uh, we're currently in a teaching series, More Than Conquerors, on the book of Revelation. And in today's passage, we are confronted with this vision of God's wrath. Having heard this vision, how does the wrath of God make you feel? Most probably, it's making you feel slightly uncomfortable. We don't really like to talk about God's wrath. I mean, it's not really the best conversation starter. And the whole idea of the wrath of God is really uncomfortable in our modern sensibility. It's not really inviting and friendly to talk about God's judgment, God's anger. But I think this passage challenges our response to God's wrath even further, because it doesn't actually raise the question of how does the wrath of God make you feel. It dares to ask you the question, do you love the wrath of God? And that sounds like an insane question, right? But this is actually what we see in today's passage. We see the people of God in praise of worship for his wrath being poured out. Isn't that interesting? Because last week we saw this contrast of God's people worshiping in contrast to the dragon to show to us our act of worship is an act of defiance to not worship the beast as the world does. And here today we get the similar contrast. We see the people of God worshiping in contrast to God's wrath. And so let's be honest with each other. Seeing praise and worship for the wrath of God, it just doesn't sit right, does it? It makes us the question, is it right to respond in this way? So today's passage, Revelation 15 and 16, it's going to help us resolve this vision of praise and worship for God's wrath by helping us see the unique, different character of God's wrath and anger. Because the only way we could ever praise and worship God for his wrath is if his character of his wrath and anger is actually worthy of our praise and worship. So let's get into the text to understand the nature and character of God's wrath. And the text starts off with the announcement of God's wrath in chapter 15. Notice that this passage returns to this visual pattern of counting down seven specific things. We've seen the seven letters to the seven churches. We've seen the seven seals. We've also seen the seven trumpets. But now it's the seven plagues dished out in the seven bowls. Significantly, it's the seven last plagues. Why last? Well, we're told last because with them, God's wrath is complete. It's finished. And we're about to witness God's final judgment being poured out onto his creation. It's the definitive end of sin and evil. That is what is on view here. And so this is the last sequence of seven things to appear in the book of Revelation. 
And what the rest of the chapters will do is spell out the implications, the repercussions of God's final judgment. So in verse 2 of chapter 15, we read, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. If you remember back to Revelation chapter 3 of John's vision of the throne of God, do you remember before the throne of God was this enormous sea of glass? It was a picture of complete and utter calm, serenity and peace. But now the tension is rising in the text because now the sea of glass is mixed with fire. There is an increasing ominous tone to things, and fire is often associated with judgment. And beside this great sea of glass and fire are all the Christians who have resisted the persecution of the Roman Empire. They are described as being victorious over the beast, representing the Roman Empire. And at the end of the chapter, we're told that they are worshipping God, and they sang a song of Moses and of the Lamb. And so this whole scene, if you're picturing it in your head, particularly the mentioning of Moses, well, it's taking us back to the book of Exodus, to when God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt as they stood by the Red Sea. How? Well, it was by pouring out judgment in the form of seven plagues. And now here in Revelation 15, we have the followers of Jesus victorious singing by the sea just before another set of plagues are about to fall. And so chapter 16, we see the pouring out of the seven plagues from the seven bowls. Chapter 16, verse 1, we read, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now, it's helpful at this stage to remember again that we're reading an apocalyptic book. This is a visual picture book where things are described symbolically rather than literally. And as we read of ugly and painful sores here, it's probably not likely that when God's final judgment comes that people will get ugly and painful sores. And down in verse 9, when it says the sun will scorch, it's not likely that the sun will move into Earth's orbit. Revelation is not a science book. It's a symbolic picture book. And so the way we can read the seven plagues symbolically is to see how the seven plagues fall into a pattern. And it's a pattern of three distinct categories. And each category tells us something about the nature and character of God's wrath. The first three plagues, the sores, the first plague, and the second and third plague, we see the seas and rivers turn into blood. All of these three plagues have the emphasis of the appropriateness of God's wrath. How appropriate it is that those who have the mark of the beast should now have an ugly and painful mark on their body as well. 
how appropriate it is that those who shed the blood of others should now drink blood themselves as they deserve. And so the first three plagues all emphasize that when God's wrath and anger falls, it's all true, faithful, and just. The punishment fits the crime. God's wrath and anger is never unpredictable. He's never capricious and inflicts arbitrary punishment as he so pleases. With God, he's always fair, appropriate. The punishment will always fit the crime. And God's wrath will always be as the angel proclaims, if you look in verse 5, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's plagues one to three. It's the appropriateness of God's wrath. The next two plagues, plagues four and five, This is where the sun scorches people and darkness engulfs the people. These two plagues, emphasis now is on the justified nature of God's wrath. Because with both these plagues, we get this same refrain in them, verses 9 and 11. But they refuse to repent. But they refuse to repent. It's a picture of the stubborn rebellion against God. And so his anger is not vengeful. It's not over the top. No, his anger is warranted. It's fitting. It's deserved. It's rightly justified. For judgment to fall on hard-hearted, rebellious people, which puts us in a difficult situation because that is all of us. And finally, in the last two plagues, we're shown that God's wrath is utterly overwhelming. In verse 12, the sixth plague unleashes this terrible demon-inspired fight as all the kings of the world take their stand against God at a place called Armageddon. And Armageddon is a real historical place. It's a fortified hill in Palestine. It's a place where a number of epic battles took place in history. Again, with symbolic image in mind, It's not necessarily about describing this future battle against Jesus that will occur in Armageddon, Palestine. Rather, the picture that it's painting is a lesson to be learned here. And that is when God's wrath falls, resistance is futile. Look at verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. What we're seeing here is the expectation for a battle that never happens. Jesus ends it before it even starts. And the lesson is you can have a go against the judgment of God if you want, You can have all the kings of the earth on your side if you want. It will still be no competition. Because when God's wrath is poured out in its completeness, there will be no battle. 
There will simply be a pronouncement. It is done. And so what we see in the seven plagues being poured out from the seven bowls is that the nature and character of God's wrath is appropriate. It's justified and it's overwhelming. And so these plagues serve to visually and imaginatively warn us. You don't want to be the recipient of God's wrath because God's wrath is appropriate, it's justified, and it's overwhelming. It's fair, it's deserving, and it's unescapable. The plagues are screaming out to us, you do not want to be the recipient of the wrath of God. And it's exactly the warning that we need to have, because it's this warning that helps us appreciate what is being revealed to us about Jesus. For he is the only one who's able to free us, to save us from the wrath of God. And so going back to the people of God who sing and worship by the sea, back in chapter 15, verse 2, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. See, the most important detail in this vision is actually the followers of Jesus who are spectators of God's wrath, not recipients. Out of all the things that is going on in this vision, the most important detail are those who are victorious beside the sea. It's the follower of Jesus who will be spared of God's wrath because Jesus forgives his followers of their sin by taking the wrath of God in all of its appropriateness, in all of its justifiableness, and all of its overwhelmingness. He takes that wrath in our place. And at the cross, Jesus took the cup, the bowls of God's wrath, and God poured it over him to take the punishment of our sin. At the cross, with his last breath, he cried out, It is finished. It it is done. And if you remember, the earth shook Touring, tearing the curtain in the temple in two, giving us free access to God. The full and complete wrath of God fell onto Jesus. All of the horrors that we see in the seven bowls fell onto Jesus. And it was appropriate, justified, and overwhelming. And so Jesus today invites you to receive his forgiveness instead of his wrath. The good news is that we can receive his forgiveness freely by faith, by Jesus' grace. There's nothing that you need to do to earn Jesus' forgiveness, but by faith, by repenting, turning of your sin, and turning to Jesus in faith, trusting that he took our wrath For us at the cross, we can be forgiven. So back to the question, do you love the wrath of God? The first reason why we can embrace and love the wrath of God 
is because it displays the justice of God. A really great Pixar animation movie is the movie Inside Out. In the movie, it portrays the emotions of a young girl named Riley. And these emotions are characters of joy, fear, disgust, sadness, and anger. And the movie does a really great job at portraying the role of the emotion, anger. Anger in the movie is portrayed as a hot-headed character, always blowing off his lid, and it makes Riley become aggressive and irrational at times. But the movie shows that anger can actually be useful and have a healthy response. The movie describes anger as making, sh- thing, making sure things are fair. The character Anger, his role is making sure things are fair. Anger in a healthy way moves us to act to make sure things are fair and just. You see, you can't have a just God who isn't angry. Some people say, look, I can't believe in an angry and wrathful God. Well, then it's impossible to have a just God who doesn't show his anger at sin, evil, and injustice. Anger is the natural response to injustice. And so we can praise and worship God for his wrath because his righteous judgment is completely appropriate and justified. The second reason why we can embrace and love the wrath of God is because the wrath of God magnifies the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ, of what he did for you and I on the cross. It's the overwhelming nature of the wrath of God poured out on Jesus on the cross that reveals the overwhelming beauty of his forgiveness of our sins. That is why the saints in Revelation 15 are worshipping. The only way to understand and experience the magnitude of God's love and forgiveness is to understand the magnitude of God's wrath. One of the most well-known, most honoured theologian is Jonathan Edwards. And so to close, I want to read a part of Jonathan Edwards' sermon to further help us see how God's anger and wrath magnifies and glorifies the beauty of our Lord Jesus. So you can see the connection that because God is angry at sin, the work of Jesus, of what he did, is that much more beautiful and glorious. I can't really do better than what Edwards has already done. So I'm just going to quote from his sermon a sermon that he wrote called The End of the Wicked, Contemplated by the Righteous. His text was actually out of the, from the book of Revelation. So listen carefully to Jonathan Edwards. The just damnation of the wicked will be an occasion of rejoicing to the saints in glory. It will not because they delight in seeing the misery of others, Rather, they will greatly value the glory of God and exceedingly delight in seeing him glorified. They will greatly rejoice to see justice take place, to see that all the sin and wickedness that have been committed in this world 
is remembered of God and has its due punishment. The sight of this strict and immutable justice of God will render him amiable and adorable in their eyes. They will rejoice when they see him who is their father, an eternal portion so glorious in his justice. To see the majesty and greatness and the terribleness of God appearing in the destruction of his enemies will cause the saints to rejoice. And when they shall see how great and a terrible a being God is, how will they prize his favor? How will they rejoice that they are the objects of his love? How will they praise him the more joyfully that they should choose them to be his children and to live in the enjoyment of him? When they shall see the dreadful miseries of the damned and consider that they deserved the same misery and that it was sovereign grace and nothing else which made them so much to differ from the damned that if it had not been for that, they would have been in the same condition. But that God from all eternity was pleased to set his love upon them that Christ hath laid down his life for them and hath made them thus gloriously happy forever, oh, how will they admire that dying love of Christ, which has redeemed them from so great a misery and purchased for them so great happiness and has so distinguished them from others of their fellow creatures." How joyfully will they sing to God and the Lamb when they behold this. It is the anger and wrath of God that makes Jesus' death beautiful. The wrath of God on the wickedness is for them occasion for rejoicing. Not because we delight in seeing the misery of others, but because we delight in the one who saves us from such a misery. Let's pray, and then we're going to stand to worship Christ, our Savior, our God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, for such a vision today. It's difficult to stomach. It's difficult to imagine how significant your wrath being poured out on Jesus. Thank you for this vision of your final judgment, but it's also a wonderful vision of the judgment poured out on Christ. Stir our hearts to not be numb to the cross of Jesus. Stir our hearts to know what Jesus had experienced, the cup of your wrath. Stir our hearts to be beyond 
grateful and thankful for your son. For out of sovereign grace, you would choose us as your children. Father, we pray that we can wholeheartedly praise you. And Father, we pray for those who don't claim to be followed of Jesus, that they would repent upon this vision, that they will receive the forgiveness of sins and to be spared of eternal misery, Lord. Father, may we stand today to worship and glorify your Son, our Saviour, Amen.